This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Despite or perhaps because of the fact that an enormous proportion of medical care worldwide is provided under the auspices of religious organizations, there has been a sustained and systematic campaign to drive out those with religious worldviews from the field of bioethics and indeed from medicine itself. Obviously, this constitutes blatant discrimination against patients, the unborn, the elderly, and the otherwise vulnerable, and their families and faith-oriented medical providers and religiously-oriented bioethicists. But more importantly, the loss of a theological sensibility among scholars and providers and the consequent diminishment of fellow feeling for patients whose lives are suffused with religiosity is stripping away the foundations of compassion that religion has provided medicine since both entered the human scene. That is the thrust of the 2021 book, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality by the bioethicist and theologian Charles C. Camosi. The book sounds several alarms. Camosi shows in the book that the increased secularization of the field of bioethics has led it, ironically enough, to become less humane and less protective of the dignity of the least among us. And he tells us something that will be hard for many of us to hear, that many of us face years of life with dementia or caring for someone with it. Camosi argues, therefore, that now is not the time for bioethics to to exclude from its deliberations and scholarship an impact on public policy religious people for whom the equality of all human beings is both sacred and a part of everyday life. We do so at our peril, for all of us will experience some sort of illness or disability and will need the protection of laws and policies crafted by those with a commitment to the worth of all human beings, even those seemingly brain dead as well as the unborn. Indeed, one of the greatest strengths of the book is the way Kamosi explains with reader-friendly clarity the differences between brain death and what was once called, chillingly, persistent or permanent vegetative state. He also examines the difference in matters of bioethics of the terms human being and persons, and why drawing a distinction between the two can lead to gross injustice and inhumanity, no matter how meritoriously clever notable members of the school of the person school of philosophies are. Think of Peter Singer, one of the thinkers discussed in the book. This book brings all of these arcane matters home by examining in depth the heart-rending stories of Jahi McMath, 
Terry Schiavo, and Alfie Evans, and the legal battles that often rendered the parents of all of them powerless in the face of a secularized or racially biased medical legal system that was at times openly and brutally anti-religious. This book is even more important to read in the current, as the current pandemic has highlighted the substandard care that has existed for decades in, the long, in long-term care facilities and the unnecessary deaths among nursing home patients in many states during the pandemic era. We can do better and be better people than this, says Kamosi. Let's hear how he says that can be. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope Jaleeman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Charles C. Kamosi about his 2021 book, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized, How Secularized, Secularized, you see, it's difficult to pronounce the word for me, medicine <laughs> is undermining fundamental human equality. Thank you for joining us today, Charlie, and maybe you can pronounce it better than I can. I'm sure you can. <laughs> Hope, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for setting it up with me. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to, to to interview you. And I'm really, the book is very moving. And it's it's not that long a book and it packs a huge amount in of and roughly 200 pages or so. It's it's a very moving book. I've read every word of it, in the, the end notes even, and they're important to read too. I'd wow. like to start off the interview. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying thank you for that. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I interrupt people even when they're saying thank you. It's terrible. <laughs> I'd like to start off the interview by breaking down some of the phrases in the title of your book. What do you mean by dignity, for example? And I'd like to ask, do you mean that people, some doctors treat people in a way that the person feels he has no worth or dignity in, a, say, a medical setting, and he's left in a hospital gown and neglected for hours, that kind of everyday sort of indignity? Or is dignity a grander concept, and where does it come from? Does it have a special place in the field of bioethics, or theology for that matter? And is it used much, in much the same way in both fields, or is part of the problem that those of a religious orientation regarded as fundamental, whereas those where the heavily secularized poo-poo it and don't regard it as important at all. In fact, they, they resent it and think it interferes with efficiency. Well, you get right to the heart of the matter, Hope, here. Um, I, you know, as you know, having read the book, you know that we can use the same word dignity to mean in the context of the things I'm talking about in bioethics, precisely the opposite kinds of things. So a lot of the movement for death with dignity, the movements for death with dignity are in right. favor of physician-assisted suicide, for instance, or euthanasia and or euthanasia. However, um, as an opponent of those uh, practices, I use dignity and others like me use dignity in a very different way to talk about the inherent dignity of, of a human person who has mm. it violated by having their um, death aimed at by saying essentially it's bad you exist. It's good, better for you to die. Mm. And um, so if we can do that in the, in the debate over physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, use the same word on opposite sides of the argument, something, is, something like your question needs to be asked. What do we even mean by this concept? Mm. And um, I guess in, in trying, to, trying to answer that, I would reference um, a philosopher and bioethicist named Dan Sulmacy, who is also, in addition to being a philosopher, a physician, and actually a former Franciscan friar. Um, he's now director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown, and he wrote an article. Oh, I was going to say, could you repeat the name? Uh, Dan Solmacy. Solmacy. How would yeah. you spell that? S-U-L-M-A-S-Y. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's one of the giants in my field. And to be honest with you, I was even more dramatic when he actually was a Franciscan friar. We could say he was a physician, philosopher, and Franciscan friar, but he's since left that life and is married now and has a very different kind of life. But he's just as prominent in the field and, um, again, head of the prestigious Kennedy Institute at Georgetown. 
And he wrote an article where he tries to delineate three different kinds of dignity, which I think my students and I think are, are pretty helpful. One is the first is a kind of inherent dignity. This is maybe the kind of dignity that um, you think of um, the Declaration of Independence talking about God-given dignity. We are endowed by our creator with it. Um, it's not something we can never lose. It's just inherent to us. Then he talks about a kind of, uses a fancy word called inflorescent, talks about inflorescent dignity. This is maybe dignity along the lines of something like your flourishing or lack of flourishing. So this might be the hospital gown thing you have in mind. Like mm-hmm. it's just not dignified to wear these kind of clothes or to be treated in a certain way based. It's almost in reference to the inherent dignity, but it's, 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 it's not, if you're saying it's not dignified to wear a hospital gown this way, that's the kind of thing that I think he has in mind there. Mm-hmm. And then there is finally a third one, which he calls attributed dignity, which I think is often what, Especially, especially in a secularized um, context, we're often um, talking about it's this kind of thing that we either give or do not give um, certain uh, creatures, certain actions. Um, but it has nothing to do with like anything inherent to the individual. It's something that either is legally attributed or socially um, attributed in a in a specific kind of context. And so that's, uh, I'm in my, in this book, I'm focused on inherent dignity. I'm focusing on that thing, which we can't get rid of that we, that makes us all equal, that, that makes us, us. Um, so that we can talk about the other kinds, but that's, that's, that's what I'm focused on in this book. Well, thank you. I'd never heard the term inflorescent. Yes. Meaning detrimental to flourishing. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I, I never, yeah. that's, that's a useful term. I, I've never encountered that before. Here's another one that is very, much more common, and that's, it's in the title of your book, the word secularize, secularize. <laughs> I, you really had weeks to prepare, I still still live. <laughs> so have, but hasn't American, American medicine been that way for, for over a century? For example, I was just thinking of when you read biographies of references to the, the giants of medicine, like Harvey Cushing or William Osler, you're, there's no there's no comment on their on their religious background or if they had any religious feeling at all, but and for I just want to mention that Francis Collins, the head of the current head of the NIH, is very different, isn't he? Kind of an outlier in that he does refer to his his medical background or I'm sorry his evangelical beliefs much more openly, and and than 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 his peers I would say is that correct or yeah yeah no I, I I take your point that um, it depends where you start counting it depends yes. what areas of medicine um, you look at I mean you could even go the other way I mean I I've been on the business end of arguments where people say we are we're not secularized enough as a medical field one in seven uh, people in fact who go to a hospital in the United States are seen in a Catholic hospital so um, you could even go the other way and say it's there's too much religiosity, especially when it comes to these hospitals claiming special religious freedom vis-a-vis other hospitals. So um, I guess the thing, though, that I'm trying to argue in the book is there's something that's changed in medicine, in healthcare, particularly over the last century, which is more foundational than any of that. It gets to the heart of just even saying what the practice of medicine is. So in a in a any historical analysis of medicine going all the way back to the uh, Hippocratic Oath, actually, which is a kind of poem that invokes the gods, right? It's, there's been this connection to religiosity, spirituality, the supernatural. Um, 
and medicine. But And so there was this inherent sense to most of our understandings of medicine in the West for the last two millennia plus uh, that that this practice is not just a technocratic thing. It's about care of a person, right? A Mm -hmm. whole person in their body and in their spiritual reality. And one of the great books written on uh, this that I invoke in my own book, it's more academic than mine, um, is written by Jeff Bishop, who's a physician and philosopher at St. Louis University at their bioethics center there. He wrote this amazing book called The Anticipatory Corpse. Mm. Yeah, and you talk about that in the book. So. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing book, and it's so well-researched, and it's got its all its T's crossed and I's dotted for, for those who are concerned about making the full case. He basically shows that um, what's happened over the last half century or, sh- or so is that we've begun to think of people, human beings, patients, as anticipatory corpses, not as whole whole people of, of body and soul. So that even when you have your first, you know, introduction to medical school and you take your gross anatomy course, your your introduction to the field almost is a dead body in front of yeah. you. And you, you imagine the person in front of you as, you know, a series of tubes or organ systems. Well, what's interesting about that, too, is I want to just mention that as things get more virtual, they're not even encountering an actual dead body. They're, they're, they're not even, it's not even a human. It's a, 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 a graphic representation of a human on a screen now. That's right. That is, that's, so we're even going one step further away from what traditionally has been understood as the practice of medicine. Now, there are people who are pushing back against this, and you know, perhaps uh, Francis Collins could be a good example of of that. I invoke in the book uh, Michael and Tracy Balboni, who are this dynamo husband and wife team at Harvard Medical School. Michael is a base theologian like me, but his wife, Tracy, is a honest to goodness uh, <laughs> professor in the medical school, you know, uh, of professor of medicine. And they wrote this amazing book together called Hostility to Hospitality, which documents, and I I rely on quite a bit in the book, actually, for my own, making my own case, this shift and how their um, attempt to recover a true uh, hospitality for the whole person is not only something that they want, it's something that actually physicians want and patients definitely want it. So it's, 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 I think it's fair to say that as we've moved in a more secularized direction away from this vision of the person as body and soul, treating them as a whole person, caring for them as a whole person. We've lost something essential about what medicine is. But but I, there are good people like the Balbonis and, and Francis Collins and others who are trying to push back on this, it seems to me. Well, I, I want to make a distinction, too, between the the holistic view where re- traditional religiosity and alternative medicine, which is a little bit more could you could discuss the difference between alternative medicine and the and the and your view of, of the, 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 the the traditional religious view rather than kind of the new age um, right. granola sort of term? Yeah, no, I don't. Sort of. No, no. Yeah. In fact, to be professors at Harvard Medical School, you would have to be up on all the latest, uh, you know, for for more traditional medicine and the technology and the practices and the latest kinds of therapies. Um, which, frankly, I don't want to d- denigrate at all. I have people mm. in my life walking around alive today who I love very much precisely because these um, techniques were developed and the organic plumbers were really good organic plumbers and they fixed the hole or they fixed the problem. 
Um, but if that's what it's limited to, right, if that's all that it is, it's just a technocratic enterprise, which doesn't actually treat the whole person. But that's quite a different thing, it seems to me, from from, from what, what you I think you're referring to, uh, what I think you mean by, you know, alternative medicine, where there's really no basis or very little basis in, you know, fact or experimental, you know, repeatable um, experiments that others can imitate, you know, da- it's not all that data-driven. So I think you can have both. You ought to have both. You ought to have data-driven, repeatable experiments and techniques um, that can that can be confirmed and 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 use a scientific method. Uh, but but then you also need, in my view, um, this other part of what it means to care for a person in their fullness as well. Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on Collins because I'm I'm kind of conflicted about him in various for various reasons. But <laughs> one of one of the things that he that he says about his his own religious views is that he it was his patients that he felt that that they they would ask for some religious succor or comfort, and he didn't he couldn't at that time offer any, and he he felt very awkward, and he felt that he wasn't being a good physician because he didn't know what to say, he didn't have any 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 ready words or, or, or understanding of what, of what they needed and what they felt. That was, I thought that was rather interesting. Um, Absolutely. Uh, to the, I'd like to know to turn the word equality in the, in the title of the book. Does that have a different, you mentioned the declaration of independence, for example, in the word in this context of dignity, but the word equality obviously appears there too. I, be, I believe it does, or the concept of well, sure, equal, equal sure, sure. does. Yeah. And so does equality, in bioethics have a different meaning than the Declaration of Independence or the civil rights movement or equality in feminist legal thinking, which actually comes up because Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she rules on abortion, she brings in the equality of feminist thinking. And that's that, which seems to undermine any sense of religious feeling that the women that are undergoing all these procedures might have. That She regards equality as all kind of thing. Yeah, it's very similar to... Um you know, dignity and autonomy in the sense that that there's lots of diversity in how this term is used. Um, I try to signal in the title of the book, actually, how I'm thinking about it by using the adjective fundamental um, to describe the mm-hmm. kind of equality that I have in mind. Um, and by fundamental here, I'm, I'm referring to something metaphysical or, um, you know, foundational about what we are at a fundamental level, morally speaking, what makes us, us again, is it, um, is, is what makes us equal that we share certain traits? Like we're equal because we're, we're rational creatures or we're self-aware beings, or we have a certain amount of autonomy or, uh, will, um, productivity, Mm. uh, well, if you ju- if you use those traits to think about what makes us us or all equal, um, it becomes very clear immediately that many human beings don't have those traits in equal capacity, and many human beings appear not to have them at all. And on that basis, uh, we can say there are these things uh, which are human non-persons. And I go into the book, yeah, in, in quite some. Um, detail about that. So I'm not, I'm not speaking about equality in the sense of, okay, given the fact that we're all equal, then what laws should be in place to make sure that that equality is reflected in public policy or in say educational outcomes or income outcomes or 
happiness quotients or whatever thing, um, you know, might be discussed in terms of that. I'm, I have a more, again, metaphysical foundational, uh, view in mind. I tell my students, I'm like, it's fine. It's even essential to get to the questions about equity and social justice. But, but before we go there, we have to ask these foundational metaphysical questions. Like who is the us we're even including in the sample size? Like Mm -hmm. what, what, where do we, who is included in that and who is not? I'd like to quote from the book on this topic. You write in the book, this book will show that our rejection of human equality is on the verge of claiming a new, large, and growing set of victims, human beings with late-stage dementia. Indeed, the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed that a large-scale marginalization of this this disabled population may already be underway. And that's, I think that's a good time to bring in the term autonomy, because it's really fascinating in the book that you make the point that Autonomy began to be used in a way that really disadvantaged the people that needed protection because you, you made the point that the trend, the rise of transplantation science was wonderful, but it said it, it basically said, well, these people are not autonomous anymore. They're just brain dead or they're, they're comatose permanently, and therefore they're no longer autonomous and their rights are therefore gone, and we need their livers and their kidneys and their lungs. And so, <laughs> and I, I, I thought that was really fascinating that you made the point that it's precisely the people that lack autonomy that need that need protection most. Is that's that right. is that about yeah, right? That's or? right. That's right. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to think about how did we get to at least it's interesting for me to think about. I hope it's interesting for others to think about how we got to a place where. It, it was people who are autonomous who matter, um, human beings that are autonomous, that matter, that are equal, that, um, in fact, uh, the folks who often criticize um, dignity as a basis for equality kind of fall back to autonomy um, as the, the thing that makes us all equal or makes us us. And I think what happened there is related to something that happened in bioethics, which is if there is a Bible in contemporary bioethics today, it's a, a, a multi-edition um, book uh, called Principles of Biomedical Ethics um, by Joe Bochamp and Childress. And um, they, uh, they've invented something called principalism, which is basically this idea that all of bioethics can, can be kind of uh, boiled down to four principles, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. Non-maleficence? Non-maleficence, do no harm, in other words. Oh, okay. um, And then beneficence, do good. <laughs> uh, and justice, uh, well, people mean lots of different things by that, but you might say give, give a person what they are due or what they are owed. And, um, and one of the ba- basic problems with most of secular bioethics and especially in a pluralistic context is there's very little to appeal to that anyone would agree about, um, when it comes to say the good, right. Or justice, what, what counts is non, not doing bad, doing no harm. I mean, there, I don't need to, probably your audience could think of 17 things in the news right now where we're debating precisely that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and also do good, uh, what, you know, what vision of the good is operative, what vision of justice is operative. So what, what in a pluralistic culture, especially where we try to have multiple understandings of the good work together somehow in a, in this mess we call a, a pluralistic democratic republic, um, we, we've kind of appealed to autonomy as the, the kind of like baseline or least common denominator we could appeal to and say, well, 
you know, we do disagree about what the good is and about what justice is. So we should kind of just appeal to people's own individual choice and freedom and autonomy and let them decide for themselves. The problem is, of course, not everyone has autonomy to decide. So what do we do in those circumstances where there is a child, for instance, and how old does a child have to be to have such autonomy? These are very live questions at the moment in medicine for lots of reasons. Um, and also, what about the other end of life where people have lost their autonomy, human beings have lost their autonomy there as well? So so it's not even though we've kind of, in my view, kind of lazily moved in the direction of autonomy being the first among equals of all principles in bioethics, it really has not solved the problems. And we've had this slippage, it seems to me, where because we've moved in that direction, we now think of autonomy as, again, the primary principle that gives value at all. So if you are if you've lost your autonomy, if you've lost your independence, if, you're, if you've lost your ability to not be dependent on others, you've lost something essential about what it means to be us. Hmm. Well, y- yes, it's, 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 it's interesting to think that that's a very, very narrow window that people have of being autonomous. I mean, you're not autonomous when you're a baby and you're not autonomous if you become disabled and you're not a, if you have ALS or you're not a, anymore, you're autonomous, you're autonomous for a, a, with your brain being able to function, but your body isn't functioning. And what, what level of autonomy is it? Is the physical autonomy? Is it the ability to say, no, I don't want this. And, and then you make the point too in the book that people are, are autonomous when they make it a living will, when they're a robust 45, but when they become 75, they, they, and dis- and mentally challenged at that point, or is that, is, is the autonomy still rule? It's, it's really fascinating that you bring all of that up. Yeah. And, and just let me quickly mention this example. Um, in my discussion of dementia as being the next kind of group to fall, in my view, of, of human beings that are deemed non-persons because they don't have rationality, self-awareness, autonomy, productivity the same way others do, um, there was this incredible and disturbing story in the Netherlands where someone with kind of mild early stage dementia made a request for physician assisted suicide, which is legal there for that reason. But then once she got into the kind of later stages, the medical team asked her, do you want us to do it now? And she said, no, I don't want you to do it now. Then then they asked her later a second time. Do you want us to do it now? She said, no. Third time they asked, she said, no. And by this time, both her family and the medical team had had enough. They reacted to three negative responses from this person with more advanced dementia by drugging her coffee and killing her anyway. And the, the doctor um, was put up on charges and was found not guilty of anything uh, in, in there. So that gets a, that's a a almost perfect, too perfect example of how autonomy, especially in relation to dementia and other kinds of disability just simply doesn't work. Why would we, why would we respect one, um, autonomous decision or say that was autonomous and the other one is not um it gets to the heart of what i'm arguing in in much of my work in bioethics that really what what happens when we respect certain kinds of autonomy and reject others is a vision of the good is being smuggled in anyway and -hmm. it's a very ableist vision of the good where we just assume somebody who's you know has a certain level of dementia has a life that's simply not worth living well, you mentioned that this is very much in the news, and we just saw yesterday that the, the incoming governor of New York has released new statistics saying that there were even more COVID deaths that, that were not counted 
in the way that they were cherry that Cuomo Cuomo's administration was cherry picking. Well, that doesn't really count as a COVID death because it was at home or it was it was not in, a, in an official institutional setting and that kind of thing. But are, are you, I just wonder if are you hopeful that the horror stories related to the high death rates in nursing homes in New York in particular, and there are also cases of of sort of a mass a ma- not a sort of but a mass grave in New, in a New Jersey veterans home, I believe. And do you think that? Are you are you are you heartened that people are starting to be aware that that's been a kind of a light of a, uh, I mean the silver line in this grim grim storm is that people are more aware of the the high level of of substandard care, but also the fact that the Biden administration has just said, well we're not going the Justice Department under Biden has said well we're not going to prosecute there's nothing to see here move along kind of thing and yeah I have to say hope that was a huge disappointment for so many of us who followed this so closely, um, especially in what I guess now we're looking back as the first part of the pandemic or early part. I mm. mean, the kind of practices that went on, not just in kind of in treating nursing home populations as kind of dumping grounds for people with COVID, but, you know, investigative reports have been done by Politico and the Associated Press showing that quite apart from COVID, um, these populations were abandoned in ways that, um, they died just essentially of abandonment or neglect, gross neglect, culpable neglect. Yeah. And, um, and like you said, maybe there's something here that was many of us hoped was good, right? In a, in a weird way, a silver lining good. Where, you know, my previous book was titled Resisting Throwaway Culture. It, it invokes Pope Francis's vision of, of throwaway culture where mm-hmm. um, the kind of language we use, the kind of structures we have in place often hide the populations who are being thrown away and discarded because we don't really want to focus on what's actually happening. We prefer to turn the other way and not watch, not be aware. And um, for for many, many decades now, that has been certainly the way that things have rolled. But but the pandemic kind of forced us to look and to say, look at this horrible thing that's happening here. And this is not just the result of the pandemic. This is the result of the kind of structures we put in place for how we treat our elderly and disabled. And so I was hopeful that in part because the Office of Civil Rights at Health and Human Services during the Trump administration was so active in pointing out all the times where these kind of civil rights were being violated. Um, and yeah you, make, yeah, you make the point in the book that you say this could be a new civil rights movement, which is interesting, the people with late stage dementia. I think it should be. I think it absolutely, it is, to the extent there is a movement, it already is, but hopefully it's one that takes off and, mm-hmm. and that we think of broadly as a culture that way. But when what? the... Um, when the when the current Justice Department stops doing investigations in 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 these kinds of decisions, where um, you know the the members of the um, of the CDC say there's something really disturbing here, and we got to find out what it's going on. Yes, you have a wonderful quote, and you have a wonderful book trailer too, in which you 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 start out with that quote. It's from the CDC, Robert Anderson. You quote. There's something going on here, and it needs to be sorted out. Just kind of a, a grim insight, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. just. I mean, I, I I think that's such a pregnant way of saying it. Like, what what is he thinking is going on there? Like, what mm-hmm. is? It's almost like it's on the tip of his tongue, but doesn't quite want to say what he thinks is going on there. I, I, I mean, I, it's certainly a kind of a abandonment, a certain um, structural throwaway culture by which we put people who we've decided have a lower quality of life off to the side 
in ways we don't have to really think about them, don't have to treat them like others. We treat them fundamentally as less than equal. Let's face it, we already do. Yeah, I think but again, was that was for- happening in the shadows before. That was happening on the down low before. That was happening in ways we, the kind of structures were built for us not to face. Now we were without excuse. Now we are hyper aware. If anybody paying attention to the news over the last year and a half, we are hyper aware of this. And I'm hopeful that the D- Department of Justice and the current administration is not the last word on this. I'm hopeful that enough fires have been lit under people that that we will actually make good on a on a civil rights movement when it comes to this population. Yeah, I credit Fox News too because they interviewed the adult patients of the adult children of these of these people that were that perished under these ridiculous. I mean, well, tragic circumstances, and that that the, they just are are up middle class. Up or, you know, well-spoken people that make clear that if this happens to our parents, who knows what can happen to someone who doesn't have an advocate. And they, they, these were people who were not uncaring parent, of children of parents. They, they said, this is my mom, and she was dumped, and she died, exactly. and I wasn't with her, and it's terrible, and it's, it's, it's very touching. Um, on the story, getting to the story of on another topic, rather than uh, get, we'll return, we'll circle back to the, to the people with dementia, but on the story of... Um, Caring, I just think of this as related to this because it's about caring families and and the, the story of Jahi Mc is that how it's pronounced Jahi McMath? It's Jahai McMath. Jahai yeah. McMath, thank you. Whose family was able to take her home, and that 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 that, that was a case where they that they basically were saying that the hospital was insisting, well, we're going to unplug her, and she's good. you want to talk about the case and the fact that that the bioethics kind of elite the elite of the bioethics was treating the family as if they were being obstructionist and they were and also it was just cruel some of the language where they talked about jahai mcmath as if she were a, a stinking corpse already and that the family was sort of this ghoulish unrealistic group of people that were just obsessing and fetishizing about the body and they said no she's not rotting away in fact she and you, and you talk about her body was advancing through the life cycle yeah, yeah. In fact, she was a California native uh, when she had her catastrophic brain injury, and the the state of California declared her dead. And her medical team, the doctor in charge of her medical team, pounded his fist in front of the family who wanted to care for her and said, "She's dead, dead, dead. What about this? Don't you understand?" And also, the hospital had had, had, had if anybody had killed her, it was the hospital, right? Because they they were it was substandard care in her case or yeah, malpractice. Ab- yeah, certainly. And in a racial justice moment uh, for our culture, the idea that this is an African American family should not be underplayed either. Um, but we don't. <laughs> we never heard that angle of the coverage. At least I never did. Um, even though her family explicitly said they could feel that that angle to all of this, that mm-hmm. it was a white doctor, a white medical team, their, their, their concerns were being dismissed in any other context, especially today. The story of Jahai McMath would be seen through the lens of racial justice. Absolutely no question about it. But right. it wasn't at the time, and it isn't now. What's so interesting about this, Hope, is that while, at least to me, while Jahai McMath had a death certificate from the state of California, she got her first period and reached puberty. So what are we saying? What What is it we're saying if we say that Jahai McMath is dead and she can get her first period? And I mean, people who are lumped into this category of brain dead have all sorts of things that they can do, like they're like other human beings do, like living homo sapiens. They can gestate children even. Like there's been cases, tragic cases, but cases of 
pregnant women who have catastrophic brain injuries like this, and they gestate a child to birth. Um, they Their heart uh, rate kicks up if you cut into them. Their body really releases adrenaline. They fight off infections. Their body has homeostasis. Now, it's certainly the case they need help to breathe, um, but lots of people need help to breathe at various times. There are plenty of people on ventilators right now uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic who are not dead simply because they need help to breathe. Um, yeah, Jahai you tell, Mc- tell the story. I don't want to interrupt too, too no, often, no. but I just want to point out that in terms of the ability, you talk about ability, it was Alfie Evans and he was disconnected and his parents were desperately giving him mouth to mouth to try to keep him alive because the hospital wouldn't provide oxygen, which was just a, a, a heartbreaking story that you tell of imagining these two young parents in the, and the medical people standing around and watching them desperately trying to, to resuscitate their, their baby son is just... Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Where is autonomy in the cases of Jahai McMath and Alfie Evans, right? There, it's nowhere. It was. It should be given what we tr- traditionally do is we try to locate autonomy in the family, but in both cases, what happened was um, Jahai McMath's family, at least in the state of California, was overruled, and they said, "I'm sorry, even though this is your home, uh, even though this is the place where you've raised her, where all your relatives are." you have two choices. You can stay here and we will kill her mm-hmm. or you can take her to a place like New Jersey and care for her there where they have a religious freedom exemption. Uh, New Jersey and New York are the only places actually in the country that have this religious freedom exemption and every other state you're screwed basically because you have to go by what the medical team and what the medical um, definition of death in terms of brain death has imposed onto you. Even though it's a contested issue, even though, it's very much as my book shows, uh, you know, the, the implications of saying that somebody who just got her first period is dead have dramatic, dramatic consequences down the road for many other kinds of disabled people. This is imposed onto people. So autonomy is not part of the story here. Again, back to the point I was making earlier, where the vision of the good is imposed even when we claim that autonomy is the primary one, in part because we the slippage of the term, right? We look at Jahai McMath, we look at Alfie Evans, we say, they're not autonomous creatures. They're the, the idea that they will be autonomous creatures in the future even is pretty slim, the chances of them. Uh, so they don't count the same as, as the rest of us. But, but the thing that made um, me hopeful about that case is, is the fact that she was allowed to go to New Jersey. Her family was allowed to take care of her there. And now just, you know, you write a book, you probably interview authors all the time who regret things immediately as soon as their book is published. <laughs> I'm one of them. There was an article written in one of the uh, neurological journals, uh, clinical journals, saying, oops, Jahai McMath was not brain dead, it turns out, but has this other kind of, she's referred to this other, uh, as, as having this other kind of, uh, um, I forget the actual term that's used, like responsive unawake syndrome, I think is what it is. They, mm-hmm. they kind of named, made up a neologism to refer to what she was. But, but if it wasn't for her family flying her to New Jersey and, and people rallying around that family and supporting her, it, she would have just been another person designated as brain death and is already dead despite being a living human being. But now we know that she was not brain dead at all. Yeah, I was surprised in the book to read that, that it was New York and New Jersey that are the only refuges for people that need that are in that terrible situation. But I was surprised because I thought, well, those are very liberal states. And yet you make the point, I believe, that it was it's the fact that it has a large Jewish Orthodox Jewish population that was able to to advocate for the for that for those policies to protect people on a religious freedom. Is that correct? Religious That's absolutely racism. correct. And and since the book has been um 
has been released, I've been in contact with a lot of um, a good number of Jewish communities um, in dialogue about this because they've been way ahead of the curve, frankly, when it comes to to this issue, saying that we are not going to capitulate to the culture's um, view of this. We believe this is someone who's very much alive and is under our care. And, uh, and kudos to them because my own uh, community of, of, of Catholics in the United States and, and evangelicals in the United States and others have been really slow to understand, it seems to me, why this was such a central move. Why we, why, I mean, in, in some ways, this is where it started, where, where, where we were able to say in 1968 with the Harvard Brain Death Commission that someone who was very clearly alive as a member of the species Homo sapiens was nevertheless considered dead. Um, was a major turning point in all of this, it seems to me. And that's why I start with Jahai McMath as my first real story or case study. I wonder, I wonder Charlie, if you could discuss the, the, the uh, you, you touched on it a little bit, but maybe a little more, more in depth would be helpful about the difference between the human being and, and the person concept. Because that seems a rather, the person concept seems a rather chilling view of, I mean, it, it, that that's heavily autonomy based, right? And that human beings are, you have an inherent value just because you're a human being, but a person, oh, well, a person has certain, you can delineate what a person is. And those are the people that matter. And the human beings are just an, an abstract quality or an abstract yeah, thing. Yeah. Is, yeah is, so is, go ahead. No, no, I, no, I was just saying for, for a lay person like me, I, I always stumble about, about the difference and your book is very helpful in that. So on the one hand, and I've written a book, uh, mul- multiple articles, and even a book trying to think about what non-human personhood would look like. So are mm-hmm. there persons, that is, you know, people with a right to life, similar kind of moral status to human beings that are nevertheless not human? And as a Catholic theologian, I'm going to say, you know, angels and demons are examples of this. In Islam, jinn would certainly count. And even more secular folks today, I think, are comfortable, or many are, thinking about, you know, non-human aliens as persons or or even <laughs> fantastic creatures like hobbits, for instance, or something like that. Um, I, I wrote a book on animals, which takes seriously, I don't ultimately go there, but it takes seriously the question whether there could be, you know, an elephant who handles the bones of a deceased relative seemingly understanding death. Is, is that... Is that someone we could refer to as a non-human uh, person? So I, I want to leave that open. But what I don't want to leave open, I hope your listeners also don't want to leave this open, is the idea of a human non-person, which we already kind of discussed. I mean, the idea that there are human non-persons is is a just an unbelievably tragic concept throughout human history. You know, I, we don't need to go too far into into the annals of the great um, slaughters of human history and the great fundamental injustice of human history to understand how this idea was employed. You know, the idea that certain human beings don't have the same kind of autonomy, rationality, self-awareness, productivity, fill in your trait X has a terrible history, a very violent history, in fact. And, but, but what I'm, and, and to our credit, we've, in some ways we've we've pushed back on this when it comes to how we think of indigenous peoples when it comes to think about how we think about racial minorities women etc we're we're doing a better job we're not there the whole way it seems to me but we're doing a better job of eradicating this this kind of prejudice but as my book tries to show we, we've created other categories of human non-persons right i think the first really key as i mentioned just a few minutes ago was describing someone like jahai mcmath as a human 
non-person and and prenatal children are, are very clearly members of the species homo sapiens organisms um, but they're also according to our law human non-persons at least for now it'll be interesting to see what happens with dobbs in june but but, but for now that's certainly the case i think even someone like alfie evans um who we mentioned earlier is because very clearly human very pink and flourishing human being from the perspective of being a fellow human being, a fellow human animal, a fellow member of the species Homo sapiens, but not having the right medic, um, mental criteria, right? Not having, again, the same kind of rationality, self-awareness, um, autonomy, etc. So, and then again, if we're going to just apply this view consistently, you know, what are we going to say about um, human beings with later stage dementia who are also lacking in these traits, especially, again, this is a key thing that I mentioned throughout the book, especially when there's um, a concern about allocation of resources. So so if you just permit me to tell this very brief story about no, the, the um, how we got to the shift with brain death and the Harvard Brain Death Commission, it came to us, it came to the Harvard Brain Death Commission, it came to Harvard Medical School in 1968 because of a concern about resources. So the... Um, the ventilator had just been uh, invented, essentially, and and uh, it wasn't that long ago that uh, in 1968, before that, that we had first started, you know, transplanting vital organs into people like hearts or lungs or the like. And uh, and there was this wild shortage of such organs. And uh, what happened was because the ventilator had been invented, lots of people's lives, human beings lives are being saved. Otherwise would not have been saved. And so the Harvard Brain Death Commission essentially said, you know what, um, if we declare these folks dead, um, it turns out we can take their organs. We can keep the, the, the requirement that taking a vital organ from somebody, they need to be dead in order to do that. Um, and so let's, let's change our definition of death from a cardiopulmonary definition to a brain death, um, a medical death, is some, sometimes people describe it as. Mm a medical version of death. And it was, it was driven by, it was driven by this concern for resources, namely organs. Now what is going to happen? Um, hope, what is going to happen when the population of, of those with late stage dementia doubles over the next 20 years, what is going to happen? We already don't put the neck, the requisite resources into their care as if that there are equals far from it. We, we discussed uh, this already in some detail. What is going to happen when that population doubles? Are we going to suddenly decide that, man, we're really not putting enough resources into this population that's our equals, let's get it in gear? Or are we going to follow what I follow throughout the book, which is a sense that, well, you know, we have this resource scarcity question, we have this resource scarcity problem. It turns out that these people don't count the same as us, so we can move our resources in this other direction. I really fear that if we continue on the current trajectory that I lay out in the book, that we're going to end up just saying, well, it turns out these human beings who are less rational, less self-aware, less autonomous, and less productive than the rest of us don't count as our equals. I know that one of the moving quotes in the book is you, you, talk, you interviewed a woman who worked in the field of dementia, and she said that it's a conversation stopper. As soon as people ask me what I, what I do and I tell them, they don't want to talk to me anymore. Because it's such yeah. a, they don't, they're just not interested in hearing about the subject. And I thought that was so tragic that here she is devoting her life to caring for people, maybe their own parents, and that she's just not 
regarded as interesting enough to talk to her or not desirable to talk to. Not well, I mean, the, to. what she told me, and she's, she's a good friend is that it, she thinks it really comes from the fact that we don't want to face this as a possible option for ourselves so that, mm. that we, it's hard for us to imagine, even though the numbers are there, about a third of us will face this probably, and maybe more as we live longer. Um, and there's also something going on environmentally, I think, that we don't have, haven't really fully worked out yet that also is accelerating this. But um, I'm sorry, what, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, I, I, we need to do more studies of this. But if if we're thinking about like toxins in our food or in our environment or oh, our, see. What's our, causing our, it? our diet, you know, I think it's not just that we're getting older and living longer. Um it's that something is going on, I think, beyond that. We need more study of it, but I think there's something else going on that's going to cause the oh, – That's all. I mean, we're already the rate is already accelerating, but if, it, it'll, if it's allowed to accelerate the way it is now, it'll double over the next 20 years. But that's a deeply – I mean, for obvious reasons, that's a deeply uncomfortable thing for us to think about. And so my friend Wendy Perry's reaction when she mentions that I take care of these people is for people to politely change the subject because she thinks – it's just not something they want to face in their own futures or the futures of their loved ones. Well, I know that I, I had a, a, I knew a woman who had ALS and she, she worked in a hospital and had many good friends in the, in the hospital. And as soon as she got ALS, they, the medical people just vaporized and it was neighbors that stepped up that were not. Mm. And it was just sad. And I asked my dad, my dad's, my dad was, is a, he's, he's passed now, but he's, it was, he was a surgeon, a physician. I said, why are they doing that? Why are they abandoning her like that? How could they do that? They're medical people. They should have empathy. And he said, because they can't cure her and mm. they feel bad. And so it makes them uncomfortable. And so that's why they just, there's nothing more to be done for her. And that's, <laughs> and just, that gets back to the, the original question about what medicine is for, right? If, if it's just about technical expertise in fixing the human body, once that expertise is proven not to be effective or likely won't be effective, then it then it doesn't surprise me that especially these specialists um, kind of vaporize because if what's left is to care for this person in the fullness of who they are and and that's used to be I think it's fair to say uh, an essential part of what medicine focused on but the more it's become a technocratic enterprise once the techniques prove ineffective what's else, what else is left to do? Mm. Well, one thing you you argue in the book. It, it, rather powerfully, but here I'll play devil's advocate and I'll say, I'm, I'm skeptical this will sure. work. But, but you say that um, you, you talk about dialogue and trying to associate traditional religious people with the social justice movement. And, and, and as we said, you made the point that there could be a civil rights movement, but you, and I'll just read this passage from the book and you say about calls for dialogue with those who are not, you talk about, you're saying we need to dialogue for those with those who are not as comfortable with traditional religious ideas or at least not as comfortable placing them at the foundation of our cultural values and legal protections. The dialogue I propose appeals to sensibility of secular progressives with respect to social equality and social justice as a way of bridging a gap with religious traditionalists. I suggest that this dialogue highlights a common goal, resisting our consumerist tendency to rate the value of human beings based on what they can produce with their level of ability, often in ableist ways which discriminate against the disabled, presuming their lives and contributions to be inferior and I just want to mention that there, there's kind of a weird, a weird disconnect in this thinking of Peter Singer, who you've written an entire book about. But he has this view of social justice, but he also has this weird dismissal of of the basic humanity of newborn babies. And it's just like I, I know as a Unitarian, as a, someone raised in, as a Unitarian until I grew up and 
left, <laughs> but yeah. they're more interested. They're just not, they're more interested in personal pronouns and protesting against pipelines and going to demonstrations than looking after people with dementia. And I just wonder, are you, I don't think that you, that, that that's going to work with the social justice aspect. They're just not interested in that. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting to them. I, I mean, yeah, no, I, I take that critique. And um, again, with many of these things, it, it the the terms are so broad they could be used to apply to multiple groups or multiple ideas. I guess I guess I have a particular kind of um, person who might identify as progressive or on the left, hmm. and especially in a secular way. And I'm I'm thinking in particular of those who identify with the uh, the um, disability rights movements. Hmm. So all, already there's this um, though though our <laughs> even this um, dialogical um and and frankly um you know uh, activist connection and 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 cooperation is under threat by a broader polarization between uh you know religious folks and more secular folks in the culture but um nevertheless it still exists though it's it has challenges um it's it it's religious pro-lifers um who want who want to resist physician assisted suicide with more secular um, progressive disability rights activists who also want to resist physician-assisted suicide, mm. and for similar reasons. So this this actually is an international um, coalition of folks. It, it defeated uh, legalized physician-assisted suicide in the United Kingdom, actually dramatically in Parliament. Um, I did not been, know that. That's very surprising. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very interesting to think about the states. Some of the very red or very blue states. Um, in the United States, which have rejected physician-assisted suicide, so Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, Maryland—is that, is that the presence of Catholics? Because I mean, I'm I live in was born in I'm in Oregon. I was I'm lived all my, all my life here, and the Catholic Church is pretty insignificant. Yeah, here. Is, is it different? I mean, was that part of the 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 saving grace of for Massachusetts was they have Catholics? Well, you you'd be able to answer this better than I, but but I think. I often speculate about this and, and having from someone uh, who's, you know, lives in a state that was essentially the cradle of assisted suicide in the United States, Oregon. My, my theory on this is that the kind of um, blue state like Oregon, like Washington, like even California in some sense has a kind of libertarian bent to it. That is basically like government ought to stay out of these questions and let people decide for themselves. We don't want those religious conservatives like imposing their views on other people, my body, my choice, my life, my death. Whereas you're right. And I think, I wonder if it does have, it's my first time really thinking about this, but I wonder if the kind of um, liberalism or progressivism out on the East coast here does have a less libertarian bent and a more, justice centered Ben. So it's not just that people have choices, but how do those choices affect the most vulnerable? If we give, um, you know, lots of people the choice to kill themselves, does that put, I mean, this is, this is where the disability rights and, and the, and the traditional pro-life, um, uh, religious folks come together and say, what kind of culture are we creating? If we say there are certain reasons we would expect you to want to kill yourself and there are certain reasons not right. So the disability rights folks say, once you establish that there are some situations in which, um, you know, we think you, we think as a culture, we can understand why you'd want to kill yourself. What does that say about me as a disabled person? What does that say about yeah. my family, a member as a disabled person? What does that say about the kind of resources, in fact, we're willing to put into 
um, the care for people that the culture has said we basically understand if you would want to kill yourself. So, um, so I don't know. Like it's it's not a huge group of people, right? As you said, there's much more, you know, glamorous or sexy issues to be associated with. Um, but it's not no one, and it is it is. And you brought up Peter Singer. I have a deep respect for him, as you know. But but one of the things that he's been called out for in many cases is by the secular disability rights movement, who said that his views are just abhorrent from their perspective. I find his views on those abhorrent too. But one thing I do respect Peter Singer for. And I'll finish my answer with this point. He's at least willing to say, you know what? The principle that was established in brain death, the principle that was established in abortion rights, the principle that was established in removing the feeding tube from people in a so-called persistent vegetative state, those principles lead to these other things like infanticide, like um, saying that someone that's lost their rationality and self-awareness because of dementia no longer counts as a person. They're a human non-person. He's at least willing to say it. He's at least willing to go to the mat and say, this is what follows. And I frankly have a grudging respect for that because he's willing to follow his principles wherever they lead. Hmm. Except they're evil. They're evil. <laughs> I, 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 just, I, I just have a problem with that. It's Robert George. Well, I have a lot to learn from him. You can learn from him without him being a professor teaching young people, too. <laughs> but, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I, just well, I, well, I find it hard to, but I, I understand he's a, he's a, he's a, he's very influential and, but I just, I just. Let me try I this on. Like, let me just, let I, me just briefly try this on. So I have a lot of students and, and people who attend my talks who are very skeptical of my worldview. And in fact, I find it difficult to even take as a academic where we're trying to expose people to multiple worldviews that challenge their own. Um, at least that's in theory what we're about. Um, I struggle to even get them to take it seriously. And so one way I can, I've had success in getting them to take it seriously is exposing them to Peter Singer, saying, now here is somebody who rejects the foundational principles that I hold dear, and here is where he ends up. And most people have the reaction, overwhelming majority have the reaction you had, that's evil. But then you need, I find it then helpful to walk people back from that and say, okay, that's right, I believe that is evil, but what precisely is the mistake? What, Where did he go wrong in his point of view? And if you can walk people backwards from that, they end up, at least in my view, much more open to the kind of worldview that, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, a more traditional religious person who's pro-life or identifies as pro-life would have. Um, so I've found him helpful just in that perspective. Like I, I actually find him really pretty convincing on animals and poverty and some other things. But when it comes to these other issues, I think it's it's helpful to have somebody see you you have the same principle that he does. He's just willing to follow it wherever it goes. Are you willing to follow follow it wherever it goes, or do you need to rethink this fundamental principle that you share in common? Well, I think that brings me to the next question, which is a large. The first part of the book is about the well. You engage the ideas with Peter Singer, and and people like uh, Zeke Emanuel are saying, "Well, we shouldn't even have religious people in in even <laughs> even in medicine," which is really yeah. amazing. I mean, and you, you give the example in the book, which is really fascinating about. A, a bioethicist with with religious a religious sensibility submitted the exact same article or the same this, an abstract for the same article, but in the first abstract he had a, a little bit of tinge of religiosity or theological language, and the second was totally secular. And they re, they accepted the the secular abstract and not the first, even though the content was identical. And I thought that was that's really really amazing, but. 
in terms in terms of but you can you talk a little about the fact that scholarship in the in bioethics is becoming very very narrow and the, and the damage that that's doing to the whole discussion that that things are simply being ruled out of rule, rule that we don't even discuss in fact you you quoted a british medical journal article that said that uh, BNG is British Medical Journal, right? So yeah. is that correct? So they said that in this 2018 article that religion should be declared as a competing interest as if you were a pharmaceutical company or, right. or, 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 or that's right. I just thought that's really amazing. I mean, it, you, would, you wouldn't think it'd be necessary. I mean, it would say if, if, I mean, probably the person's affiliation would be clear enough from their, where they worked or, or not necessarily, but that brings me to the other point that bio bioethicists who have a religious bent are more and more being restricted to Catholic universities and Christian universities. Is that correct? I mean, it's That's hard right. for them to find jobs in, in secular universities. Yeah. The people like Robert George are, are kind of going the way of the dodo and oh. um, he's managed to carve out a place for himself of deep respect at Princeton. But um, you know, if you look around and you say, who are the Robert Georges coming up? It's very mm. difficult. Yeah, they're in, uh, they're in think tanks like Ryan Anderson. They're not yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I even feel that at a at a Jesuit university, uh, a Catholic <laughs> Jesuit university, that um, met in many places uh, in in my own institution, these views are deeply unwelcome, or at least need to be translated, like like you mentioned, into a kind of secularized milk toast yeah exactly <laughs> um, you use our language or you don't you're not, you're not you will not listen to you at all and yeah so i'm um so i guess what's happening there at least what i suspect is happening there and there was just a um there was just a uh special edition of the journal of medicine and philosophy dedicated to uh to this topic um what I think is happening there is an attempt to marginalize points of view that someone disagrees with, even if they weren't religious, right? So there's groups called secular pro-life, uh, for instance, mm. who have very similar views to the ones um, I have, but they are marginalized precisely because of their views, not because of their religiosity. It's secular pro-life. What I think is happening there, because it's a world in which... Um, it's a world in which power matters more and more in relation to arguments and evidence because ultimately what if the, much of the academy is becoming is an attempt to wield power to produce a certain outcome, not an attempt to kind of, um, you know, have an equal and open and honest discussion of these, of these issues. And so what I suspect is happening here is an attempt to, to label something as religious, not because what's religious is, you know, ought to be removed, but we don't like the particular religious, um, we don't like the particular religious answer that is given to this particular question. If the answer is climate change, and we're talking about Pope Francis, mm. perfectly fine to have a, um, you know, a, a religious voice. But if the, if the religious person is giving a response to a, an issue like abortion or, or um, or brain death or physician assisted suicide, th then we then we do feel comfortable saying, ah, you know, you really should be, you're not really allowed to be part of this conversation. So I, I to be fr to be frank, I have a pretty cynical view of what's happening here. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Robert George, and I wanted wanted to ask you about that. His view, he often argues, is that 
he's saying, I don't have to rely on religion to make my arguments. I just have to use the science and the and the uh, the ethical ba- the philosoph- the philosophical grounding that I have. But you argue, well, you are you say basically, let's use religious arguments if they're relevant and if they're and not be shy about it. Is that is that correct, or am I caricaturing both of you? No, no, I think that's right. I mean. You know, Robert George and I have a great deal of respect for each other. I certainly have a, a lot of respect for him. And he comes out of a new natural law school where I don't need to tell you he's of the view that there are certain really substantial goods that we know by reason alone. And um, I used to be very much in that camp. I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate and really believe that. But the more that I've done my own work in bioethics over the years in a master's program, PhD program, and now as a professor, the less I've, the less I've been convinced of that. There are some people who seem to have, there are groups like secular pro-life and there are some people who end up as, you know, secular Aristotelians who have a similar kind of vision of the person or the human being that I have a kind of hylomorphic mix of the body and soul. But those are incredibly rare cases. Hylomorphic is? It's it's a fancy way of saying that um, the soul, unlike a Platonic version of the soul, uh, which imagines them as being like somehow, you know, disconnectable so that you can imagine your soul kind of floating away from your body and existing somewhere else, that they're really, the body and soul are intertwined. The soul is the form of the body, actually. And so there's this hylomorphic relationship between the body and the soul. And and for most people, actually, at least in the academy that hold that view, they happen to be Christians um, or Muslims or Jews. Uh, and it has a great pedigree. You know, this came, Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian and philosopher of the Middle Ages, basically adopted um, Aristotle's view of the soul here. And there are a handful of people who identify as secular that have that view of the soul that, that has some of the implications that I'm arguing for in the book and that professor George has in, in his philosophical vision. But the more that I do this, the more when I'm asked, um, when I ask people to ground their point of view, um, in, in something that's universalizable, the, 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 <laughs> they're not able to come up with it, uh, without a kind of reference to something like theology, like a, a first principle that is really, really detailed in its, its vision of the good that is, that is not, offered to somebody by a reason that is offered to someone by some kind of, you know, a consent to authority, even if it's their own intuition, a kind of a, a consent or assent to authority. And, and one of the main arguments of, of my book actually is that this is how we all reason, that there's really no view from nowhere. There's no view from mm-hmm. this kind of like abstract, uni- universalizable, point of view, we all have visions of the good that rely on those very thick first principles that kind of grab us or claim us by a kind of authority or intuition. And, and so there's really no reason, in fact, to, to distinguish between a secular first principle, say, you know, maximizing utility and a more religious first principle where we talk about, say, the dignity, respecting the dignity of, of every human being equally. Um, those are, those are equally valid first principles to bring into a debate or argument. And there is absolutely no reason to say on the one hand, the religious person either is not allowed to bring that principle to bear, or they have to translate their principle into some other kind of foreign uh, moral language. While we, t- while we tell the utilitarian, 
oh yeah, come on in. The water's fine. You know, plenty of room for you. In fact, if you have this, I mean, there's plenty of disagreements between utilitarians and more Kantians, let's say, who are secular. Their disagreement is just as intractable, right? As say the disagreement between a secular person and a religious person. But for some reason, they're permitted to bring their secular idea of, and of, of the good without any kind of provisions made at all. Whereas someone like me, in fact, I'll finish by telling this very brief story. Uh, Peter Singer and I have kind of developed a friendship and He's invited me to debate him on numerous occasions in front of his school uh, class at Princeton and even his home country of native country of Australia. I was about to be inter, inter, introduced by him in a debate we were having or a panel discussion, I think, um, in Melbourne. And before introducing me, he turned to me and said, are you sure you want, because I gave him my bio, right? And he said, are you sure you want me to say you're a theologian? <laughs> because he thought that would immediately kind of put people me in this category where people wouldn't take me as seriously. And I said, no, yes, I, because he wanted to introduce me as a philosopher because he wanted to give me the best chance possible to be heard mm-hmm. by the audience. But I insisted on being called a theologian because it's, it's way past time for us to stop, you know, taking this back seat as it were, or, or being kicked out of these discussions. There's no reason for us to do that, especially given how this, I, this theological idea of fundamental human equality, it seems to me is at the center of how, if we're going to respond to this crisis, this will be at the center of how we do it. So there's no reason to take a back seat. Good for you. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Charles Sikamosi about his book, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. And on the point of taking a back seat and the fact that ex- being excluded from the discussions, to in the case of Alfie Evans, that it was very blatant that they were saying that anyone internationally it was kind of a nationalistic thing of the judges were saying, well, this is a British matter and that we don't have the ro- we don't have real rule here. And, and that they, they were the, the American evangelicals were portrayed as this interfering nefarious international cabal. And, it, and you make the point in the book that they're simply standing up for the powerless. They're not some over overweening, horrible moral juggernaut. They're standing up for the defenseless people. Right. That's right. And, and even if one has a principled reason to say, I don't, um, for the following reasons and arguments, I don't agree with them that this is a defenseless person um, or they don't agree that this is the way to treat uh, in the best way a defenseless person. The idea, <laughs> the idea that, that, that Alfie Evans family, which is a working class religious family and that the religious people around the world, including the Holy Father himself, Pope Francis, wanted him to be treated as as any other little boy and given a shot to be to be given that treatment without having his his life sustaining treatment removed. The idea that that's somehow ruled out of balance or meddling or somehow is a paradigmatic example, I think, of what I'm talking about here, because the kind of language I encourage folks who read the book to, to, to not skip this chapter because yeah, the kind of language the kind of language that's used to describe by like major, major um, you know, judicial figures in Britain is contemptible. Yeah. It's contemptible. And and I, my my experience of folks who move in those directions um, is that they're they're out of arguments when they move in that direction. Because what what his family and those that supported him were saying was when you decide that his life is not worth living and remove his, um, 
his life support. You're aiming at his death. And this is a kind of killing. This is a kind of ableist killing. And the way that the high court and others responded to this um, was to, was to say that this, some version of this is contemptible and totally ridiculous and, and, and religiously possessed and all the other things that rather than engaging the actual arguments, um, it was just an attempt to use straight again, back to my point about power, right? It's, it's, it's less about uh, trying to make a case against a particular point of view and more about trying to taint that case with a certain kind of stench or kind of like slap a label on it that makes it easy, more easily to dismiss. Yeah, in the and case frankly, of, that's, in, that's working. That's worked. Yeah. In terms of stench, that was the kind of, of imagery that, that people like Arthur Kaplan used with J- Jahai McMath, right? That it was, it was a literal stinking corpse. And, that, which yeah. was, which and it was, was no was, accident that her, her African-American parents were deeply, family was deeply religious as well. So it's, this is a theme running again throughout the book. And you make the point too about autonomy that is that the people they're not even consistent because what about the autonomy of Alfie's parents and their right to remove that where is the autonomy for the mother and father when there's an armed guard in the front of their child's room right. and, and they weren't allowed to take and the Italians were saying we'll take the boy and there won't be there won't be this they are you talking about resources they 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 made the the judge the judiciary in Britain kept it well they're I mean, they didn't, I, I guess maybe they weren't arguing this specifically, but that was implicit that are limited resources. Italians are saying, we will, we'll take care of that. We'll pay for it. It's not an issue for you. Just let him That's go. Right. I mean, you're basically kidnapping him, right? Or holding yeah, the, him the, 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 um, the plane from Bambino Jesu hospital in Rome was literally like ready to take Alfie Evans to Rome to be treated. And so there were, now there were no immediate issues of, allocation of resources but the case i make in the book is i do think the impulse to not treat someone like alfie evans does come from a single payer that what's implicit in a single payer healthcare system run by something called qualies or qualies quality adjusted Mm, life years that's fascinating yeah so um you can imagine the problem you have in running a single payer healthcare system with limited resources and virtually unlimited healthcare needs this was the one of the uh, foci of my dissertation in the first book was how do we how do we limit how do we think about doing that? The way the NHS in Britain has decided to do it is to use a, a, a well worn category um, or measure um, in bioethics called qualies, quality adjusted life years, where the they put an actual you know pound or dollar amount um, per quality adjusted life year added by a given intervention, and if it if 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 it's not worth it, quote unquote, then you don't do it. And and w- what they do is they not they don't just think about well how many life years would Alfie Evans have if we do continue to keep him intubated and continue to feed him. Um, it's it's the quality adjusted life years. And there we're in really murky water and we can see where the vision of the good is coming out very clearly again. Like if if you think his quality life year quality of life is zero, right? If if you if you need rationality, self awareness, um, you know, capacity for will or um, exert your will or to to be productive or to be autonomous, you might say he has zero quality of life. Because he doesn't have those traits at all. And if that's the case, then however many life years it is, you multiply by zero, you get zero. And so my I, I don't I don't have evidence for this. I can't prove it or something. But my very strong suspicion is that this has created a kind of mentality, which which many bioethists call the quality mentality, mm. 
where a particular kind of intervention is 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 either limited dramatically or not done at all precisely because of this kind of quality of life judgment and and they and, use the term slow code which was cherry chilling i thought i'd never heard yeah, that term. yeah yeah so even what the slow co- the slow code is yeah or show code sometimes it's it's talked about so again back to this are we really pri- even prioritizing autonomy when those that hold power have a different vision of the good mm. about what's happening in rare cases to be clear it doesn't happen a lot as far as we know but it does happen in some cases where a, a medical team or the leader of a medical team disagrees with the decision of the parents or or the or those who are speaking or the or the spouse you know the person speaking for the person that's lost their autonomy and, and ability to to advocate for themselves um say in the NICU or again at the end of life, um, sometimes, and again, it's not all the time, the medical team will, will say, say they want a full code, which is they want everything done. The family does, or the spouse does. If Charlie, the I medical inter- team I has decided. For the, I was wanting to interrupt to the NICU is neonatal intensive care unit. That's right. Sorry oh, about that. Sorry, yeah, no, neonatal just, intensive care unit. Because some of our listeners are not professional bioethicists. So I <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm even falling into the trap, the acronym (laughs) trap. Um, uh, Yeah, so that that was actually the subject of my dissertation and first book was neonatal intensive care unit Mm -hmm. ethics. And and one of the things I learned from from that research and rounding with these medical teams actually is that some of these medical teams say they've decided that the baby is so disabled, a la Alfie Evans, um, that it doesn't make sense to revive them or to to do ex- what they would consider extraordinary treatment. If the parents insist on it, the law and the law says that they have to, you know, they, that means they want full code. They want everything done. You know, if the baby arrests, they want, they want the child revived or at least attempted to be revived or, or whatever, you know, is necessary. Um, they will sometimes show code or slow code, which means they'll kind of do it. Mm. But they won't do it fully or they won't do it in the way that's likely to produce the best outcome that the parents would want in terms of reviving the child. So, again, it's like, okay, I guess we could say autonomy is the primary value in medical ethics if that might be problematic. But at least that's a bulwark against this kind of thing, but except that it isn't in all cases, because there are certain examples where medical teams will just say, um, we, I mean, it's essentially kind of deception, right? It's a, it's, it's saying we will follow the law here and, and do what you've asked us to do, except we won't. And, and so that's very much related to what I think was going on in Alfie Evans case as well. The, the people who were in charge of Alfie Evans, uh, decided that more, more sustaining of his life was not in his own best interest and, and a particular vision of the good, one that I find abhorrent, uh, won the day. Yeah. And sometimes, um, sometimes it is not, a, a person or a person who's badly, badly brain damaged. I remember reading a very moving article by a quadriplegic attorney. And he talked about the, he would go into the hospital for wound wound care because he would get ulcers because he that's, that's a problem for quadriplegics. And he said that there, the residents would often say, you know, you don't have a very good quality of life here. Are you sure? And he would just say, look, I have a thriving, med- a thriving law practice. Would you just treat my ulcer and we'll I'll let you get on with your day. And it was, I wish I could find that essay because it was, he just talked about the pressure on him from, from, from doctors to, to not, to not want to continue. They wouldn't want to live like that in other words, but he does, yeah. he did. So. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about um, 
there every once in a while there's an article that shows up in some prestigious magazine or online publication which chides the great unwashed who don't have white coats for for holding on to you know a poor quality of life and not acknowledging that it's time to let go and to be clear like as a catholic theologian especially who looks up at a crucifix in my classrooms i i know that there are times where you don't do everything you can to save your life that's an essential part of what i believe as a religious person as a christian however it's that's a big difference there's a big difference between that and the kind of quality of life judgments that we've been talking about here it's so interesting to point out that in study after study uh the patients of physicians end up valuing their own lives at significantly higher rates than the physicians do and that's interesting to speculate about why that's the case but i think a major part of that is uh because there's a kind of ableism inherent in in a in an elite culture where people make their livings doing the kinds of things that often the patients who are under their care can't do. And so it's difficult for them to even imagine like, well, if you can't do these things, like why would your life even be worth anything? And and that gets into that fundamental change about the human person that I started with. Like, is it, it does our value come from the kinds of things you can do? Like, like related to your autonomy, rationality, self-awareness and productivity, or does it come from the kind of creature that you are, the kind of being that you are, and not related to you know your abilities, a kind of ableist understanding, and and there, it's, I'm I'm not surprised to hear you tell that story because uh, from that essay because that is in some ways at the heart of what medicine is today, the kind of ableism. Well, getting back to the idea of again, I'll play devil's advocate here, and, and you're very you're very adamant about and make a good point. And I think as a non-Catholic, I'm, I'm admire your, your belief in Catholic order. Uh, actually, you even suggest that young pe- people could create entirely new orders, religious That's orders right. about, about that. And I wonder if you talk about that. Cause I found that with my friend with ALS, she was a very religious Episcopalian and that church did absolutely nothing that I could see. Again, it was, it was maybe a one, a phone call or a week or, or something, you know, but, but in terms of practical help, it was very ineffective. And I wonder if, th- if that's a problem with just liberal Protestantism, which I seem to be attacking today, but that seems to be <laughs> the way that they, 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 they function. It just was not, it was just so superficial in terms of what was actually going on. I wonder, could you talk about yeah. that, the, the, about the, the possibility of religious orders or, or another question I had was, are, are Catholic churches or any churches creating group homes rather than institutional settings? Are they trying, trying different, or, or are they having congregational meetings about, look, we have this, these elderly single people and in five or 10 years, we're going to have to figure out what to, how to help them because they're going to be on their own. And that's a big undertaking for a single congregation, right? But that's the kind of thing, is that the kind of thing you're advocating or? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a, I think a, um, multi-pronged set of suggestions towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. In fact, a short, medium, and long-term kind of approach here. And you don't pull any punches dis- either. You tell you tell adult children, look, you're going to have to just allocate your finan- family finances to preparing for your mother, being for your parents being, being um, disabled mentally. You're just going to have to figure that out, and you should try to move where they are. And I thought... That's 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 pretty demanding. But you're saying that that's what we have to do. We have to move be to be closer to our parents. We have to uh, uh, budget budget accordingly. And it was it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, I um, 
I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think, I think in our current moment, it comes across as quite demanding, but is it fair to say, I, I you know, I don't want to be too nostalgic here, but is it fair to say that in a, at a different time, we would have just assumed that this was your responsibility to mm-hmm. be um, caring for your parents. You have this unchosen obligation. That's another part of autonomy, right? Is an autonomy obsessed culture imagines that all our, um, all our, all our fetters, all our obligations, all our burdens are, are ones we choose to have. There are, there's no such thing if you're an autonomous person anyway, as an unchosen, um, obligation, but, but as a Christian and as, and as somebody that's claimed by, um, the commandment to honor your father and your mother, there's, there's just this thing that I owe my parents that, um, I'd never chose (laughs) to take on, but is just there as a brute fact. And, um, it was there for my parents as well when I was born. So, um, and here we are pretty comfortable actually saying that if you're a parent that neglects your child, um, you are guilty of something <laughs> very serious, right? You can even have your children taken away from you. You can go to jail. Um, but if you do the same thing to your parents in their age, we have no similar kind of understanding, right? They're, they're on their own essentially. But one of my favorite authors um, and bioethicists, Gilbert Mylander, who's a Protestant retired bioethicist now wrote this amazing article in first thing is called, I want to burden my loved ones. Hmm. And um, if you know Gilbert Mylander, you know, that's pretty funny for him to, to, to offer a title like that. Hmm. But what he's trying to say there is, listen, we had this time where we were very burdened by our children. Um, but it wasn't to even use the term burden is almost like a category mistake. Yes. I guess in some sense, and it was burdensome, but in another sense, it was just this incredible privilege. And, we still, I think, though it's maybe changing a little bit in the culture, especially as it becomes secularized, I think. Um, but it's still kind of this sense that, yes, it's a chore to change diapers, to be up in the middle of the night, to take care of somebody in their terrible twos, to think about how to educate them in the current environment. There's all kinds of, quote, burdens, but they're privileges in a way as well, right? The burden and privilege are interconnected. They're they're inseparable in a way. And I am, I have a three-year-old and, and I am burdened by him, but it's my privilege to be burdened by little that is, you know, now he, he makes a case in this art, in this article that we should think very similarly about our parents, right. And our, or our older relatives or just our, those in our community, right. It's yes, it is a burden in some sense, but it's also a great privilege. And in other cultures, it's, it's a more pronounced privilege. So we, we can actually look at cultures and to show that it's not even necessarily a Christian thing, say in East Asia, for instance, which have just a kind of dramatic focus on their elders as really, really super um, acute and, and important and powerful. Well, well, even there, I lived in Asia for five years, and even, even, they, even there, it's, it's the, the whole careerist aspect of, yeah. of in China is, is sad because that's, that was one of their great strengths, as you say. And, yeah, so even there, the kind of vision of the person that a kind of productivity-centered or you know, the kind of vision of the good that we have in some ways exported um, there is, is, is led to this problem. But, but at any rate, Gilbert... Mylander's point is we need to shift um, uh, the same kind of understanding we have as 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 the burden that our children put on us as being a kind of privilege. We need to shift that insight to the other end of life as well. So the quote unquote burden that our parents put on us is also a kind of privilege for for us. And I and here I'm not being judgmental or any kind of um, holier than thou um, kind of place. I'm my parents are in the early seventies in the Midwest. And 
I'm a Midwest boy, born and raised, but I'm out here working in New York, living in New Jersey. And I wonder very, my, my brother and sister all moved away as well. Um, you know, who is going to take care of my parents in right. their age? And, um, I was raised by my parents in some ways and by the culture in other ways to think of, you know, my not really having to worry about something like that. I, I just need to go off and like actualize my plans and my, um, you know, my dreams and go out and live the life I want to lead without those kind of fetters or burdens associated with it. And, and to a certain extent, there's something good about that, right? I mean, lots of people need to fly free from the lives they had as children in their hometowns. And my, and my, my students remind me of this when we talk about it in class. But on the other hand, there is, if you, if you, I think that needs to be balanced with the sense that that's not all there is to life that you have in addition to these, you know, pursuing your goals and dreams, there's this other responsibility you have as well. And, and I think if we can ha- live in a kind of balanced tension between the two, we'd be in a much better place with regard to these sets of issues for sure. Well, I think that people of all ages could, should read this book because you do talk about young people and how they, many of them are kind of drifting and unsure of what to do with their lives. You're saying, well, here's a group of people that desperately need help. The elderly, the frail elderly, those with dementia, if you want to make a difference in which they kept saying they do, well, there you go. It's right there for you. And, right and, there, it's, it's, and it comes there. at a time, Hope, it comes at a time where they're not just drifting, they're hopelessly lonely in, in need of just oh. basic fundamental human interaction, you know, because they're living their life totally through their smartphones and their Instagram accounts and their fake Instagram accounts, their real Instagram accounts. And, um, you know, dating has kind of gone down the tubes I was just talking to somebody um, earlier today about my students can't believe that my generation or my parents' generation actually has more sex than they do. They think of themselves as <laughs> wild and crazy, but their lives are are so isolated and in in need of just basic human accompaniment and and interaction. and And it turns out there's this other <laughs> there's this other population who is in need of exactly the same thing. So why can't we think about, especially as churches and local communities, why can't we think about trying to connect these two populations in need of these, of these, um, this hu- basic human interaction in ways that I think would be beneficial for both. Yes. Cause you profile a, a woman, a composite character or give her a pseudonym called Anella, who's this young woman. She's just heroic that she's simply a nurse's aide in a nursing home. And she just rescues this poor woman. That's just in terrible trouble that she's just been left in this. As we say, we started the interview with the word dig- undignified and she's just in this, you know, soiled, unwashed condition of this this previously lovely woman. That's just and Anella just this. This is bad. This is bad. I'm going to deal with this. I don't care. You know, I'm going to. And she talks about it's hard. She said it's hard to turn someone in bed. It's hard to to move them. It's hard to lift them. It's backbreaking work. But Anella is just a very memorable character. And with that, uh, I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, um, it's interesting. You mentioned um, we've we've talked a lot about uh, physicians in this um, in this discussion. We've we've not talked as much about nurses, and it's mm. it's it's worth noting. I think it's it's in some ways I would say as a theologian, maybe providential that you finished by talking about a, a nursing aide who is also a nursing student on her way to be to become a nurse. Good for her. I'm glad to hear that. Um, my next book is on nursing bioethics, specifically bioethics for nurses. And one of the presuppositions of the book um, that I think turned out to be right, I hope it's not just confirmation bias, but um, was that 
I would I would have a very different kind of focus on the kinds of issues I was raising if I focused on nurses rather than physicians. And it, that just turned out to be absolutely the case. The, the, the profession of nursing is far more focused on whole person care, in part because they don't start with the anticipatory corpse. They start with caring for people mm. at, at the heart of uh, what their vocation is. And they're around in ways that often physicians are not. You know, They're dealing with the patient on a much more substantial full full-time basis they're dealing with the family in a similar way they're much more aware of the fullness of the reality of the person than you know certainly the specialists are and even the attending physicians are so there's something i think really important to capture about nursing at the heart of healthcare as a kind of bulwark or a kind of maybe i don't know what word to use some, something that's very different than the kinds of things we've been looking at um, over the course of this discussion and I, I, I'm just delighted to, to, to be finishing actually the manuscript for that. And we're now trying to make final edits. I got a co-author actually, who is a former student of mine. She was in a, one of the first bioethics classes I ever taught when I was a graduate student at Notre Dame. Now she herself is a professor of nursing. So That's sweet. Good for you. I have the, um, the honor of working with a former student on this book who is much more tied into the clinical aspect of this. So I'm just really excited because I think, I, I think, and I'll finish with this. I think the more that we can push back on this idea that, you know, physicians or healthcare providers are, are, it's our technicians. Um, and, 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 and with, with a vision of the good that says, no, you're, you're treaters and carers for people, treaters of and carers for people. A lot of this that we discussed will, 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 will go away or at least be mitigated. And, and, and I'm, I'm happy. I'm much more hopeful actually about our healthcare system, having focused on nurses over the last year or so. Um, because I think here we really find, you know, what, what healthcare is all about. Well, I think that's fascinating because I just recall your connect, your, your dedication to the idea of profiling nurses. I remember that the founder of the hospice movement, Cecily Saunders was, was a nurse and she was told, that's how, and that's how she came to her vocation of caring for the people who were isolated and dying alone and had no one to look after them. And she was the home health care nurse. And she was told she wanted to, to reform this and create a movement and bring attention to the, to the hospice movement, which she didn't formulate at that time, not formulated yet. But she was told, you know, you have to become a doctor because no one will listen to you if you're a nurse. And so she said, fine. And so she went to medical school. And then I thought the irony was many years ago, the man who wrote the book about cancer a few years ago, the emperor of all maladies. And he talked about the nurse, Cecily Saunders. I thought, well, here she went to medical school to be a doctor and yet he's still, he's, and I, but I thought that he, he quoted her as a nurse. I thought that was interesting that he valued her as a nurse rather than as a doctor. So that was, and, and that the, was the, uh, the Florence Nightingale, who is sometimes called the, you know, the foundress of contemporary nursing was deeply influenced by, um, the Sisters of Mercy and other religious orders who were, um, the, you know, the kind of precursors to what we think of as nurses today. And so that's another entree into it for me as a theologian to think about what, what operative vision of, of the good of, of, of healthcare and of the person was w- led to this, you know, very beautiful and essential aspect of our healthcare system, namely nursing care. Well, it'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration, if they try to attack Catholic hospitals. I was surprised to learn that you said a quarter Roughly a quarter or more of American medical care is provided in Catholic settings. One in seven patients that goes to a hospital is seen in a Catholic hospital. Wow. Well, with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Charles C. Camosi, author of Losing Our Dignity, How Secular... How Secular...
secularized medicine <laughs> is undermining fundamental human equality. I got your name right, but the word secular just was a burden on me if we're talking about burdens. <laughs> and thank you, <laughs> listeners. And thank you, Charlie. And thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.